Good afternoon, everybody. My name is Catherine Poots, and I'm a student at Meredith College. Um, I'm very pleased to introduce our next speaker today, who is Catherine Gorka. Catherine is the president of the Council on Global Security, a think tank that works to develop, advocate, ad advocate, and build support for policies that will promote freedom of belief and defeat extremist ideologies. From 2009 to 2014, she served as executive director of the Westminster Institute based in McLean, Virginia. Her company, Threat Knowledge Group, provides counterterrorism training and expertise to the FBI, special operations, local law enforcement, and military. She co-edited the volume, Fighting the Ideological War, Winning Strategies from Communism to Islamism, and appears frequently in the media, including Fox News, Breitbart, EWTN, CBN, and Al Hira. Most recently, she co-authored the report, ISIS, The Domestic Threat. So please help me in welcoming Catherine Gorka. Can't wait, first I need a picture. Okay. Um, I am so happy to be here. I can't tell you how encouraging I find it that you all are here and it just gives me so much hope for our nation. So I commend you all for making the effort to be here, for fighting the fights that you're fighting in your particular areas and I hope that you'll be strengthened by this day together. Um, I really have to commend Michelle as well for her extraordinary vision in doing this work and her whole team. I just, you know, being in a field that is so male dominated, I can't tell you how important I think it is. And I, I commend you and I thank you. And thank you for having me here. This is my first time speaking, so I'm really excited to be with the Institute and to be speaking to you today. Um, I thought that the way I could serve you best today is not to go in super detail about ISIS or US counterterrorism strategy but rather to use my experience in this field to help underscore why it's so important that you're doing what you're doing, that you're engaging in the battle of ideas. So let me start first with a little story about my own career. Um, I had gotten out of graduate school, London School of Economics, and I went to work for a think tank in New York City. My job was a corporate membership associate or something, and I had a lovely office overlooking Park Avenue, and my job was to send letters out to banks and corporations saying, please renew your membership, um, continue to support the work that we're doing. And next to me was a guy about my age, maybe a little bit older, who was one of the policy people at this uh, think tank. And I remember standing outside his office one day early in my career, and I saw his uh, clippings files. I mean, th this is actually really dating me, I guess, because nobody keeps clipping files anymore, because uh, we have the internet. But in the old days, uh, the way you kept up with subject areas was to cut out the newspaper articles and create files on these. And I saw his clippings files, and I really coveted those clippings files because I wanted to be doing the substantive policy work that he was doing. 
And I noticed after a while that all the women in this organization worked in support positions. So fundraising, like my corporate membership job, uh, special events, human resources, admin. There were no women doing the substantive policy work. And it kind of mystified me. Um, I didn't think too much about it. I continued in my job. And eventually, um, a new sort of program director was brought in. He was a Korean-American named Tony. And I think he was kind of progressive. I think he'd come from UC Berkeley, which would probably explain his, his, his attitude. But he came in, and very early on in a conversation with me, he confided. He said, I've noticed that there are no women in senior positions here. There are no women doing policy. There are no women in senior management. And he also said he noticed, because being in a director's position, he was privy to the salary figures. He said, I've also noticed that all the women make much lower salaries than the men. So he raised the question with the vice president of the organization, he told me. And the um, explanation from the vice president of the organization was, well, we all know that women aren't really here for careers. They come in, they work for a few years until they have children, and then they go. And by having this high turnover, it's actually good for us because it keeps the salaries low, keeps our costs down. Well, I'm here to tell you, it was a career for me. I also was a mother. That didn't interfere with my career. And it just proved what an utterly idiotic thing it was that he said that. Um, and it still shocks me to this day uh, that somebody could say something like that. And I think the fact that you all are here is also testimony to what kind of backward thinking that was. And it's so important that you all are here engaging in the battle space of ideas. Because let me tell you, and I hope that, that what I can tell you about the counterterrorism fight today, I hope it'll illustrate this for you. Warriors are desperately needed. Women are needed, and women who are conservatives are needed most of all in the battle space of ideas. So let me try to describe a little bit the battle of ideas that's taking place in my area, which is the threat from radical Islam. Um, first of all, I will say it's hard to know exactly where this threat is going. Sometimes uh, I think it could just implode tomorrow, and we may find ourselves next year saying, ISIS, what was ISIS? You know, it may be forgotten and all finished. Um, there's definitely evidence that as Muslims are given the opportunity to live under the new caliphate, you know, the territory in Iraq and Syria, as they get to live in their longed-for theocratic empire, they're realizing it's not so pretty, right? They have their thought police, their, their religious police, <clears throat> and it's really a, a religious totalitarianism. We're seeing more and more evidence of that. It's not a pleasant picture. And so I think that, I think you are definitely seeing Muslims becoming disoriented by that experience. At the same time, there are incredible stories of former Muslims who have converted to Christianity, who are really engaging in the war of ideas, talking very openly about the differences between Christianity and Islam, 
and winning thousands, if not millions, of converts. I want to mention just two that I've encountered who impressed me so much. One is the Turkish woman, Isik Abla, who broadcasts from Virginia into Turkey, has, I don't know, more than a million followers. And another one, Brother Rashid, who's from Morocco. I don't know if any of you have had the opportunity to, to see them or to hear them, but they're just doing incredible work, so brave, so honest, engaging in debates that we have simply stayed away from. So these are signs for optimism. They are there. But honestly, I have to tell you, I see more signs for pe pessimism. I mean, just look at what's happened in the last 30 years, right? 1980s, Al-Qaeda, honestly, I mean, their image has kind of been blown up, but if you really read carefully into the history of Al-Qaeda and you look at their early history, it was a bunch of ragtag guys who wanted to be fighters. Most of them never got too close to the battlefield because the real fighters in Afghanistan didn't want them there. Bunch of ragtag guys hiding out in caves in Afghanistan and Pakistan. That's what it was in the 1980s. In three short decades, look at where we are today. Al-Qaeda blossomed into ISIS. It holds territory the size of Great Britain. They have affiliates now in 18 countries. They're able to carry out attacks throughout Western Europe and the United States. And let me just say a word about what they're doing here in the United States. As of the last uh, couple of arrests, we now have about 112 people who've been arrested or killed in this country since March 2014, it was just before the caliphate was announced, who are supporters of ISIS. What else do we know? We've heard James Comey, the director of the FBI, saying the FBI has 900 active ISIS investigations going on in this country in every 50 states. And what's, what I find even more alarming is of those 112, nearly 40% are domestic plotters. What does that mean? They don't want to travel to Syria and Iraq to fight with ISIS. They want to stay, stay right here. They think their fight is here killing us killing Americans, going after our law enforcement, which is one of their biggest targets, going after our military, going after us as citizens. I mean, look at the, uh, just look at the, the recent attack in New York and New Jersey, 11 homemade pipe bombs. Now, fortunately, only two detonated. That was bad enough, but imagine if all 11 had detonated. And I think we've got more like this coming down the road. So by every measure, I would say, you have to argue that our fight against Islamic terrorism is failing. Why is that? With all the resources that we as a nation have and all the resources that we have brought to bear to fight radical Islam, and let me tell you, the resources are 
massive. How is it that ISIS keeps growing? Why does this jihadist threat not go away? Why does it keep getting worse? Well, the answer is the administration has utterly misdiagnosed the threat. And the genesis of this misdiagnosis is an ideological one. It's founded on a very leftist view of the world, one in which all cultures are theoretically equal, with the additional twist that we have a commander-in-chief who says America is a kind of colonial power that needs to be put in its place. This worldview sees terrorist violence as the end result of justifiable concrete grievances. And I kid you not, there is a whole academic discipline devoted to this, where it started in about the 1980s. And I mention this because I think it's really important to understand. Everybody, you know, we always get this question. Why does Obama look at the problem this way? Why will he not call it Islamist terrorism or Islamic terrorism or whatever you want to call it. Why will he not call it that? Well, it is his own worldview, but there are also academics who have made a whole science out of this, where in the 1980s, they started to say, let's not call it Islamic terrorism, let's call it Islamic activism. These are people who have been, you know, these, these so-called terrorists have been disenfranchised or they have disadvantages, so they're forced into acts of violence. I don't know, I was shocked when I found that out. Um, and now, I mean, and I have to say, you know, there have been a couple prominent people um, who made it onto our national security staff advocating that point of view. And I sort of took them as outliers, but I have to tell you, um, I've just started my PhD, a little late, but better late than never. Um, and so I've had to get back into academia. Because actually, to tell you the truth, when it comes to national security, there's a, I, I think there's a pretty wide divide between national security and academia, because academia tends to be uh, irrelevant, really, for lack of a better word. I mean, once you have your training, um, I think academia doesn't have a lot to say that really informs what we are currently doing. And I'm just amazed as I get back into academia and I start reading these articles by sociologists about terrorism, and it shocks me how much they hate not just our country, they hate nations. It is so socialist and anarchist, it, it just blows my mind. But anyway, you have this very specific world, you have this very particular worldview that has seen terrorism as the result of grievances. And because of this, terrorists in many respects are seen as victims rather than perpetrators. You know, the problem with this leftist worldview is that it reduces man to his material self and ideologies and beliefs become irrelevant. And the left utterly ignores the man's spiritual self. You can see this difference uh, very sharply in the contrast between now the democratic view 
that all you need to give people is food stamps, welfare, and free health care. Well, where did that get us, right? Look where we are now. We've got riots in the streets, we've got rising murder rates in the inner cities, and we've got massive racial tensions. So I don't think giving away all that free stuff and answering people's, you know, quote, material needs has really gotten us anywhere at all. Contrast that with the conservative view. And I feel it was, you know, for the purposes of this discussion, I feel it was best expressed by Arthur Brooks, who was mentioned earlier, the president of AEI, American Enterprise Institute. He did a TED type of talk called Happiness. And if you haven't see it, seen it, you have to watch it. It's fantastic. It's must-watching, must-watch uh, video. And he goes through the science. Arthur's very good because he both he knows the science, but he's a great storyteller, and he's a conservative. Um, he talks about what do people need to be happy. He talks about okay, to a certain extent, whether you're a happy person or not depends on your genetic makeup. Uh, part of what determines whether you're happy or not has to do with have uh, circumstances gone in your way or not. So if you've had really bad things happen recently, you're not going to be happy. You can't do anything about it. If things have gone pretty well, you are going to be happy. And again, you can't necessarily do much about that. But he said there are four factors that we do have complete control of. And these four factors are found to be critical to our happiness. And they are faith, family, community, and work. Faith, family, community, and work. And just as a side note, he, he does a fabulous thing about work, and he talks about the importance of earned success. So he does a whole explanation about how, you know, nobody that won the lottery ever got happy, right? What makes us happy, it's not the money, it's the fact that we've earned our success. But when do you ever hear the left talk about the importance of faith, family, community, or work? No. They're focused on free health care, food stamps, and welfare. How does this relate to the fight against terrorism? How does this sort of worldview divide between the left and the right relate to the fight against terrorism? Well, if you see terrorism as a function of grievances, you're going to address that terrorism by trying to resolve the grievances, right? If you think that people are turning to terrorism because of circumstances in their lives, it makes sense to try to change those circumstances. And so you're gonna develop a particular set of policies. Uh, this administration has believed that Islamists wanted political representation. And so, our administration supported the Muslim Brotherhood and other Islamist groups in the Arab Spring. Other policies that have resulted are we've just simply trying to take down ISIS with drone strikes, trying to kill their leadership, and disrupting income flows. Now, don't get me wrong, because these are both very important. We need to be fighting them on the battlefield. There's no getting around it. Uh, you can talk about the finer points of whether it needs to be the United States 
fighting that battle or whether it's the Iraqi army with US advisors, which is probably the better way to go, a stronger role for armies in the Middle East, whatever, there does need to be a fight on the battlefield. We do need to be interrupting their ability to raise money, but these things are uh, by themselves are not alone. And one other way that this sort of socialist leftist worldview terrorism as a function of grievances has affected us here at home, and I hope this shocks you and disturbs you, is that all of our resources now that were previously being put into training law enforcement on counterterrorism, helping law enforcement understand what is Islamist terrorism, what is this ISIS threat, you know, basically, over the last couple of years, it has gradually come to a grinding halt as resources are shifted over instead into CVE, which most of you are probably familiar with, countering violent extremism, which essentially means community engagement. So we think that we're going to solve the threat from ISIS by making nice with local Muslim communities. Now again, I think there is a role for that, without a doubt, but that alone is not gonna stop the threat from ISIS, and it really makes me nervous. I think it's terribly unfair to our law enforcement. We're leaving them unprepared, and it's leaving us unprotected as a nation. I think this should be very worrying, um, and I, I really hope, you know, unfortunately, it's, it's barely being talked about in Washington. I mean, there's so much going on and so much to talk about. Um, but I do hope that this is one of the things that the Congress will wake up to and pay attention to um, because it's leaving us vulnerable as a nation. So let me predict now that I don't think the jihadist threat will go away. I think it's going to continue to get worse until we correctly understand the ideological nature of the threat. And this is what conservatives, I think, bring to the debate, and this is why conservative voices are so important. And again, you can translate this to any area. I know that you all are interested in a diverse range of policy areas, um, subject areas, but you know, there's this constant fight between left and right, between conservatives and liberals, and within the field of counterterrorism and national security, this is what the fight is coming down to. And right now, the left is winning in a big way. So one of the big things that happened back in the fall of 2011, the Obama administration sent out a memo to the Department of Defense and the Department of Justice and said, you need to review all your counterterrorism training materials and all your trainers. This was accomplished with an absolutely astounding speed and efficiency that one never sees from government. And within a matter of weeks, hundreds, actually thousands of slides were pulled. They were put into a skiff in the FBI. And many of the trainers, which we didn't have a lot anyway, we do not have a lot of expertise on Islam in our national security community. And most of the trainers were banned from further training. And I just want to give a shout out right here to Michelle Bachman because of all the members of Congress, she was the one that went down to that skiff 
She made the FBI agents stand there with her until about midnight as she looked through every single slide to see what it was that was so controversial. <coughs> but again, unfortunately, we don't have many people in Congress who are fighting this or who are even watching it. So the problem is we are misunderstanding the threat. And I think our role, I mean, I can certainly say in, in our small way, my husband and I, because this is all we do, is we make the case again and again and again to every audience that we can get in front of that this threat will never be defeated until we understand the ideas that are driving it. Because you can be sure that for every ISIS leader that we take down, there are 15 more people willing to take his place. We need to understand as a nation that the people we face don't want to kill us because they're poor. They don't even want to kill us because they don't like our foreign policy. I'll read you a quote. Um, I'm, I'm sure some of you saw this, because this actually sort of gained quite a lot of attention uh, when it came out a few weeks ago. Dabik. Dabik is the magazine, very glossy, very professional. It's the magazine, the online magazine that ISIS publishes. In English, it's actually in English. Um, the last issue, Dabik 15. In an article called, entitled, Why We Hate You and Why We Fight You. And they said, we hate you, first and foremost, because you are disbelievers. You reject the oneness of Allah. Our primary reason for hating you will not cease to exist until you embrace Islam. It sounds really harsh. I, I want to interject here. I, I, we, I definitely draw a line between what we call Islamists, right? The people like ISIS who embrace this kind of totalitarian worldview and Muslims. And I, I don't mean to paint with a broad brush on Muslims, so I hope that's clear. But this is the, this is the ISIS worldview. They are totalitarians in the same way that the Nazis were, that the fascists were, that the communists were, and their beliefs, it's their beliefs that require our destruction. And nothing that we can do to, to placate their grievances or their material needs is gonna make that go away. Once you understand this, um, and I will say, on a happier note, I do think a growing body of people in the US are starting to understand this. I think a lot of our operators understand this. So you get this real divide between the leadership that seems to be driven by this ideological thing versus the actual operators, whether it's military and law enforcement. They get it. They see. They're educating themselves. But once you understand that it's the beliefs that are driving them, and that those beliefs are utterly uncompromising, then you would develop a very different strategy from the one that we've been employing so far. What would be the most significant difference? I would, I would, point, I would point to two things I think that are just critical. One is we have to understand their ideas. 
You know, right now, we're not even allowed to talk about them. The ruling when this huge purge happened in the fall of 2011 was you couldn't use words like jihad. We banished words like jihad, Islam, uh, Islamist, um, I don't know, there's a whole range of words that actually got completely banished from the national security lexicon. You've heard it yourselves. Obama will not use the words. We're not allowed to talk about it. We don't provide training on it. We don't train our troops, we don't train our law enforcement on what this threat is about or what the ideas are. And that's the first thing that has to change. We have to understand what drives them. And the second thing is, we have to accept them at their word. If they say this is all about Islam, it's not our right to say, as both Presidents Bush and President Obama have said, that this has nothing to do with Islam. We need to take the politics out of the threat assessment. You know, there was this quite famous case in the last few months where um, I think as many as 60 analysts from CENTCOM, Central Command in Florida, filed a complaint because their reports on the threat were being whitewashed to match the political narrative in Washington. That is deadly. We have to engage in the war of ideas. We have to understand their ideas and we have to challenge them. And we are doing neither. And sometimes, okay, I'm gonna, speaking to myself here, sometimes it really seems like a long, impossible road. I spend days, weeks, months at a time at my desk reading jihadist literature, writing about it, and I'm like, when are we ever gonna come out of this? You know, when are we ever gonna make some progress here? But I always go back to Reagan. I know we've talked a lot about him. And here, what I think was so important about the, the I think that the important lesson from Reagan is not what he did when he became president, although there are great lessons there as well, but what he did in the decades leading up to it. Do you know how many times he gave a speech about communism? He repeated those ideas probably thousands of times in his lifetime. And I think if you, if you were to take away only one thing from what I say today, it's this. It is a long, hard haul to change the needle in the culture, to move the needle in the debate and you just have to keep repeating and repeating and repeating yourself. I think what's so interesting when I, I guess for, for many, many years early, early on when I got involved in this stuff, I used to think, well, if you write one article, your thoughts are out there, right? You've said it, it's communicated, you're done. Absolutely not. You know, and I think there's tremendous value. I, I love some of the things that, that different women have said in the course of the day. Writing your ideas down is absolutely critical. But you have to keep writing them, even if it's repetitive. You want to, and think about this, think about the few number of outlets that you actually monitor actively and think it's that way for everybody. Everybody has their slices. Everybody has their, their resources. So you, if you're trying to move the needle, you need to be getting into all of them. You need to be reaching so many different audiences. 
and you will be at this for years. But there's nothing more important because, and let me tell you, the left has been at it for years. And I can see this now. It's incredible to me. You know, the left decided to take over the schools, I think, in about the 60s, and it's incredible how they've succeeded because we didn't engage and they did. Now, I think we're starting to turn it around. I think we're starting to take it back. But we have got to be engaging in the war of ideas. I just want to read, there was a beautiful quote that I found um, from someone who's really, I don't think he's really a conservative. Um, he's sort of an intellectual named um, Paul Berman. And he had written a big article in the New York Times about Syed Qutb. Qutb, as some of you may know, was kind of the grandfather of uh, really Islamic terrorism um, from Egypt in the 50s and 60s. And what Berman was reflecting on, I think he called the title something like the philosopher of terrorism. And what he was, what was reflecting on was actually how, how rich and deep are the arguments being made by the terrorists. I mean, we hear all the time about their tweets and what they're doing so actively to win people over, but it, there's much more than that. They are arguing on a profoundly deep level and that's a big part of how they're winning con converts. And we're not answering. And that's what Berman was, was sort of lamenting. And this is what he said. Who will speak of the sacred and the secular, of the physical world and the spiritual world? Who will defend liberal ideas against the enemies of liberal principles? Well, I think you're the ones who have to defend the ideas. And I just really encourage you all to stay on track and to engage and be warriors in the battle of ideas. Thank you. And let me just add quickly, I know we'll take maybe five minutes for questions. I, I wanted to also say, I know there are a few of you here who are interested in careers in national security. I am staying through, through dinner for the night. I'm so happy to talk to anybody who wants to talk about how do you do that, you know, what are career paths, how do you get engaged in that. So don't hesitate to come up and ask me if you have questions about that specific angle. Any questions? Yes. First off, thank you so much for coming to speak with us today. Um, in my studies in political science and international security classes, I know there are a number of scholars on both sides of the aisle that say America's policy of uh, liberal hegemony and um, worldwide moral policing is expensive, ineffective, and promotes a growth of extremism. They argue that the U.S. should revert to offshore balancing and let our regional allies defend themselves for as long as they can. Um, this is also in Donald Trump's campaign. What type of policy should the U.S. adopt in the next administration to best serve our interests abroad? Um, yeah, I, I totally disagree with it, but I understand the sentiment that they're getting at. I think we've been spending ridiculous money abroad. Um, I think we've gone abroad with, um, you know, part of the problem is that we've had mission creep in a lot of places. We went into Afghanistan to defeat uh, uh, Al-Qaeda. We ended up deciding we needed to build a democracy. That was a big mistake. Um, 
I think we absolutely have an imperative, no question, to be the world's policeman, because nobody else can do it. If we don't stand up for a certain kind of law and order, let me tell you, it is breaking down, and that's what we're seeing now. That doesn't mean sending troops everywhere, um, but I also think that's not a lot of where, I mean, that's not the only place where we're spending money. I mean, the amount of money that we're spending right now to promote the LGBT, I can never get that right, you know, that agenda, um, the amount of money that we're spending to promote uh, Planned Parenthood and family planning, um, you know, we're spending crazy money abroad on all the wrong things and we're not spending money on the right things. So, back in the back there, uh, sorry, go ahead. Uh, yeah, so I just have a question. Um, so I'm from Minnesota, so obviously there's a lot of things happening there with like Al-Shabaab and the recent um, like mall attack. Um, so what specifically can the U.S. do to combat like homegrown domestic acts of terrorism? And like what can we do to make other people feel less unsafe? Like I know like my cousin who's from St. Cloud is afraid to go shopping with her kids now. I think it's a legitimate fear. Um, I, I think we have no choice but to defeat this threat. And I tell you, a big part of the problem is that because we've misdiagnosed the nature of the threat, you know, um, we are not going after the cause of it. So one of the really big problems is we have crazy radical preachers spreading hate in this country. We have these Wahhabist, Salafist, extremist preachers who are going around, and I think capturing Muslim youth in this country and, and making them more extreme. And we are not lifting a finger. We're not even watching it. Um, and it just, we're, we're gonna lose a whole generation of Muslim youth in this country if we don't wake up to that. What can people do? I mean, I, I just think people need to um, educate themselves. Uh, I can, <laughs> I can um, very enthusiastically I recommend my husband's book, which is great, called Defeating Jihad by Sebastian Gorka. It's a fabulous book because it's written for a general audience, but it really explains the nature of the threat. I think people have to get educated. And again, I think people have to engage in, in, in the war of ideas, and I think people have to get active and, and speak out and, and speak about their unhappiness. And it doesn't mean, it doesn't have to translate into you know, hatred for all Muslims, because that's what we're not talking about. That's the way we're being portrayed, but that's not the way we are. And I think people need to, I know a lot of people are scared to speak out because they don't want to get painted with that label, um, but I think it's time for us to force a national conversation. It's the only way we're gonna get, get through this. Okay, I don't want to overstay, my, oh, one more? Two more questions, okay. Um, so I took a class um, a little over a year ago about Islamic sectarianism, and basically what they stressed to us is that there has always kind of been an Islamist extremist group really kind of since the beginning of Islam. Um, do you see ISIS as staying kind of the preeminent face of the Islamist movement for the foreseeable future, or are there any groups that have the potential to overtake them and kind of be the face of the Islamist movement? Interesting question. Um, I would say, first of all, it is absolutely true that this thread has been there, and I'm so glad to hear that they're teaching that, because I feel like very few people recognize that. A lot of people just trace terrorism back to, like, 1979. Um, but it does. It goes back to the very, very beginning, and I think that's part of what I've written about in the piece that you all have, and there are lots of places you can go to read more about that. Because of that, because that element is within Islam, um, I definitely foresee that even if ISIS falls, 
somebody else will rise. And there are already, I mean, there's a lot of talk now that Al-Qaeda is resurgent under uh, Zawahiri. Um, every, ba basically, anywhere that you find, in any country where you find an Islamic population, there is within it an Islamist insurgency. And that's a part of what makes me so nervous about the future. Um, we tend to get very focused on a specific threat, whether AQ or ISIS, and then we kind of put blinders on to everything else going on. But I'm telling you, this is, it's a global civil war within Islam, and we have to recognize that for what it is. I think there was one last one. Okay. Hi, uh, so operating under the assumption that certain facets of the Islamic faith um, are inherently violent, and I don't know if you'd agree with that or not. Yeah, 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 definitely. But, yeah, but operating under that assumption, uh, where can we draw the line between allowing them to practice their faith freely under the First Amendment and making sure that none of our other citizens who also have rights uh, do not get infringed upon by um, them practicing their religion? I think it's probably the trickiest question that we face, and I think that's why we've had such a difficult time grappling with it up until now, because we are so schooled in the notion that we shouldn't judge other people for their religion. It is our DNA as a nation. Um, and I think that's why most Americans have such a hard time to judge Islam or to say anything negative about it. But the, the problem is exactly this, that there, it does have that strain within it, clearly. Um, and it, the more you study it, the more you see that it goes back to its very origins. But, but honestly, again, that's why I think suppressing the national conversation, as this administration has done, has been far worse than had we been allowed to talk about it openly. Because I think most Americans are smart enough to see the difference between their neighbor, who is the good Muslim neighbor, who wants to live peacefully alongside them, and between the supporter of ISIS, who's setting off pipe bombs in New York City. You know, but we're being made out to be like a bunch of idiots that we're not gonna be able to figure out this difference. So, which is also why Trump makes me a little bit nervous, but anyway. I just hope that at least, you know, if we have a Trump presidency, I just hope that at least um, we would have the freedom to talk openly and that, you know, the intelligence of most Americans would come through and we're not going to go on this anti-Muslim rampage, but we'll have a good, honest conversation as a nation about the problem. Thank you so much.